0: My global IQ is 109, 100, 199, 147, 126. I'm your host, Jim Falk, and today I'm joined by the president of the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, DC. Ambassador Douglas Silliman served as our ambassador to Iraq from 2016 to 2019 a country where he has had considerable experience having previously been Deputy Chief of Mission and Minister Counselor for Political Affairs. He retired from the Foreign Service this past April after a distinguished career spanning some 35 years. It's great to have you with us. Jim, it's great to be here. Iraq and Iran have dominated the headlines in the first month of 2020. And to remind us of the recent flurry of events in both countries, there was the death of the U.S. contractor, which was followed shortly thereafter by the killing of General Hassan Soleimani on January 3rd, the downing of the Ukrainian civilian airliner by Iran just five days later, which coincided with Iran's launching of ballistic missiles on two Iraqi military bases, housing U.S. troops and equipment. Given all of this and the uncertainty that exists in this region, you must have been very, very busy the last few weeks.
1: It's been very interesting uh, to Mm -hmm try to acquaint the people with whom I've spoken in the media and uh, in person about the timeline because I would take that timeline back about a year and a half to the time when the Trump administration pulled out of the Iran agreement, uh, May of 2018, and then imposed what they described as maximum pressure economic sanctions on Iran. Iran immediately announced that uh, these sanctions were economic warfare by the United States but spent the better part of a year in diplomatic efforts to try to get the European Union, China, Russia, and other major trading partners to work around the US sanctions. When that didn't work, they started to withdraw gradually from their commitments under the Iran nuclear deal, and at the same time started a number of sort of pinprick military attacks that they could also deny. limpet mines on uh, tankers outside the Strait of Hormuz, rockets at Saudi civilian infrastructure, the downing of the American drone, and a really big attack in September of 2019 on the world's largest oil processing facility in Saudi Arabia uh, with Iranian cruise missiles and drones, expecting that some of this would put pressure on the United States from our friends and allies in the oil market to reduce or at least or eliminate the sanctions there was no reaction. The oil markets didn't react, Uh, the financial markets didn't react, the Trump administration didn't really do anything very serious, and the Iranians, I think after a year and a half of trying to use relatively less violent methods to reduce the sanctions, then had their proxies start shooting rockets at US and coalition forces on Iraqi bases in Iraq, which lasted through October and November and into December, and it was only the 27th of December that you mentioned where they fired 31 rockets at a relatively small base with a relatively small number of American forces that they crossed the Trump administration's red line of a US casualty. And that attack, the death of an American military contractor who ironically was a naturalized Iraqi American, set off a this very quick chain of events that you just set out. But a lot of this is really has been the Trump administration's desire to put real pressure on Iran and Iran's what they describe as maximum resistance campaign uh, to go back and push back against the maximum pressure campaign.
0: And to remind, we pulled out of the JCPOA unilaterally. We were not joined by our European partners. That is
1: correct. Uh, we pulled out unilaterally uh, because the Trump administration did not think that it, that it was comprehensive enough and they, were, they said that the money that had been paid to Iran permitted Iran to, do, to fund proxy forces and do other things that should not have been allowed in the terms of those agreements.
0: So here we are in late January, and just this week the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad, which I'm sure is heavily fortified, was struck by a Katusha rocket attack within the Green Zone, launched, understand, by Iran-backed militia. So what's the motive of that? And I guess what puzzles me is that the Iraqi government seems unable to control this type of activity.
1: Two responses to that. First of all, The sequence of events that you laid out at the beginning of our conversation, the killing of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani and the Iranian rocket attack were kind of the high point of the tension. And both Washington and Tehran decided after that, we don't want a direct US-Iran shooting war, so we're going to throttle back a bit. President Trump downplayed or didn't emphasize the injuries to American military personnel from those Iranian rocket attacks. And the Iranians basically said, If the Americans don't do anything more, we're not gonna do anything more directly. What that means is, however, both sides have gone back to the status quo ante. Two weeks ago, Secretary of State Pompeo and Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin doubled down on the sanctions regime against Iran, added new sectors and new individuals and companies to the sanctions list. Iranian proxies throughout the region have declared numerous times that the United States has not yet paid sufficiently for the crimes it committed in killing Qasem Soleimani and an Iraqi militia leader in early January. So what you have is the US and Iran got very close to the brink of war. Both sides decided that was not a good idea, but they've gone back to their previous strategies. And what worries me is that it is possible that with what I think is increased anger on both sides because of these events that you laid out, it's going to be much easier for one of the two sides to miscalculate, get closer to sparking a larger conflict once again. Now inside Iraq, you're right, the Iraqi government has not protected the embassy the way that it should have. It frankly never has since the establishment of the embassy right after the fall of Saddam Hussein. But
0: but prior to this happening in the last few weeks you were seeing massive demonstrations in Iraq Mm -hmm. against the Iranian presence.
1: It's a little more complicated than that. The massive demonstrations started in early October and have lasted till today, but they were mostly focused on their own economic future. These are mostly young Shia Iraqis from the south of the country, the population centers from Baghdad southward. They were protesting government inefficiency, bad delivery of services like clean water and electricity, corruption in the government, and also the arbitrary behavior of a lot of militias. And it's the Iranian support earlier and now for these militia groups is where the anti-Iranian tinge of these demonstrations came in. And while they were protesting the government and demanding new elections and new elections for a parliament, they were also saying, you know, Iran, Iran, out, out. The killing of Qasem Soleimani and Abu al Mohandas, the Iraqi militia leader, changed the tenor of those conversations And while a lot of the demonstrators weren't terribly upset that Sudevani had been killed, they were very upset that he was killed in Iraq. They felt that Iraqi sovereignty had been violated, that Iraq's agency had somehow been taken away both by Iran through support for militias and by the United States. Now you will see more references to Iran out and America out. I think ultimately the anti-American sentiments are going to die down because the United States is not as visible in Iraq as the Iranians are and what we do. Since the real basis of these protests and the hundreds of thousands of people that have been in the streets is lack of economic opportunity, the unemployment rate is incalculable because there are no good statistics. What is true is that now nearly a million Iraqis every year go on to the job market and because of the very socialist nature of the Iraqi economy and their economic upbringing, most of them expect to get a government job. And in 2018, the Iraqi government was able to create about 42,000 jobs for, at that point, the nearly 900,000 Iraqis who wanted them. Uh, what that means is everybody else is left on the gray economy, working for, in their cousin's shop or in, you know rolling tires in an auto repair shop, just making do uh, because The government is corrupt. It's overregulated. Militias also conduct a lot of gangland-style activities at the neighborhood level. So it's difficult for an Iraqi entrepreneur who wants to start a business to actually develop it and grow the business very large.
0: Now a word from our sponsor. Dallas Baptist University is a global, Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ Podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a Master's in International Studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at dbu.edu. So one of the things we saw again just a few weeks ago is the Iraqi parliament, non-binding, but the Iraqi parliament voted to have the US troops leave and the prime minister is a caretaker. The government has not been formed in what, three months or so?
1: After almost four months. He, he left as a full prime minister. He resigned and took on the caretaker uh, responsibilities, I think late October, early And the October. constitution
0: required for it to be handled by the end of December, and it hasn't been. So what happens now?
1: On the parliamentary resolution f- to ask not just US but all foreign forces to leave the country, a number of Iraqi commentators have looked at the film on the C-SPAN equivalent on Iraqi TV of the vote have counted 130, not 170 members and said there was not a quorum, so this is not legal. It was also clear that the vast majority of Kurdish members of parliament and Sunni members of parliament did not attend the session in protest. So that shows that there is not overall agreement among Iraqi society to ask foreign forces to leave. And even at one point uh, during the session, the TV, went blank for about 30 minutes, and people kind of got up and said what they really thought. And a couple of the Sunni members essentially said, be careful what you do. If you kick out the Americans and the Brits and the Europeans, will you get investment from those companies? Will they stay here? Or are we going to be completely on our own at the mercy of Iran or whoever wants to take us over? Then they turned the cameras back on and everybody was happy again.
0: Well, we don't want to be viewed as occupiers. And yet, President Trump said, if you ask or force our troops to leave, we will impose sanctions on Iraq. Can we do that?
1: What he said was actually a little bit more nuanced than that. But the reality is, probably there will not be, because the prime minister is a caretaker prime minister, because there is not political consensus, and because most Kurds, most Sunnis, most Christians, most Yazidis, a lot of sort of urban educated Shia want foreign forces to stay because they are training Iraqi forces and are a real counterbalance to Iran, in addition to helping to fight the remnants of ISIS. I think that this is going to just roll into the future slowly without any real resolution. And I saw today that the prime minister made a statement saying the process of thinking about the possibility of a future presence of foreign forces is complicated and will take some time essentially saying this isn't happening tomorrow and I can see months and months and months go by before there is any real decision and the legal basis for not just the United States but 16 other coalition countries and NATO to be there is 18 separate you know written agreements it's going to take some time to work through them so the bureaucratic inertia of the Iraqi government coupled with the fact that about half the country doesn't really want it to happen anyway, will likely slow this all down. And one of
0: the things President Trump said in that statement was that he hoped to see NATO take a larger role. Is that something that you think is possible and advisable?
1: It's something that is possible, and it's clear that the Trump administration is open to reconfiguring or redefining the role of U.S. and coalition forces. NATO is a convenient non-U.S. flag. NATO, the NATO mission is run by a Canadian two-star general. It might even be possible to reflag the coalition, the training and uh, anti-ISIS coalition, and it currently is headed by a three-star American general. Why couldn't it be a three-star British or French or a Canadian general as well? There are many ways to, to reconfigure this to address the concerns, the political concerns of Iraqis. It will not address the concerns of the pro-Iranian types who really want to see all Western military presence and most Western economic presence pushed out of the country, but it will create a situation where enough people can support it that the opposition, I think, will just flag over time. We have a mortgage in Iraq, and you will find that a large number of Iraqis want us to be there because they want, at a minimum, to have a balance between the United States and Iran. It's, an unfortunate, it's unfortunate that a, Iraqis see that their country is a balancing point, or a place of competition between the United States and Iran. But most Iraqis want to have working and uh, decent relations with both to avoid things getting worse.
0: Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And with that, as always, I ask, what's your Global IQ?